This is the Blind Panels Podcast, where we look at part one of issue number one of Time Warriors, written by Guy Hassan and illustrated by Juan Emmanuel Almiron. Each episode, I'm going to take a little time to dissect the cover for two reasons. First, the cover is is such an important practical tool in comic books. If you're casually browsing at a comic book store, the cover is supposed to grab you and suck you into those sweet, sweet panels of illustrated goodness. The second reason is I've never been exposed to comic books before, and so I've never gotten to see comic book covers. I've listened to adaptations of comic books through vendors like Graphic Audio, but they don't talk about the cover at all. And again, I feel like with all media, from albums to DVDs to autobiographies, the cover means a lot. Think about the cover for Nirvana's Nevermind album. I've never seen it, but I know its place in pop culture. So every time we talk about a new issue and we talk about the cover, let's all think of it as if we're at a store and we're seeing the cover for the first time. How does it make us feel? What does it make us think? The cover for the first issue of Time Warriors fits that mold I talked about earlier, where it has to grab you and reel you right in. A group of seven cadets, dressed in military uniform, stand on stairs and salute. A bullet goes through each of their heads. Right away, it's clear this story pulls no punches. Our heroes aren't dying in the first issue, they're dying on the front cover. That makes me think this whole series is going to be full of twists and turns, the kind that zig when they should zag, and it makes me feel eager for a little more exposition. So let's dive on in. Before we get any further, I want to warn anyone who is yet to read this book that I'm going to talk extensively about it, which means, yes, I'm going to spoil what happens. So please listen at your own risk. The first few pages do a really good job of introducing us to the seven heroes we'll be following which in this case consists of seven classmates in a time travel academy. We're basically told that in order to graduate, each student has to die. We're not outright told that the students will be brought back to life at a later time, but seeing as it's a time travel school, it's not too much of a leap to draw that conclusion. We know the cadets have to die, but we still don't know why they have to die. All we know is most of the cadets seem pretty at peace with the idea. Well, as at peace with dying as you can be. There's one major exception, which we'll get to soon. But first, let's talk a bit more about the exposition. The first few pages remind me of a death row inmate choosing his last meal. Only instead of choosing between filet mignon or the world's rarest truffle, our cadets are planning one last hurrah before they have to bite the bullet. It's important to point out that none of the cadets know exactly when they're going to die, So they might finish that last activity, or they might be gunned down in the middle of things. By showing us each character's plans, we get a glimpse into each character's personality. For example, Rodrigo's plans for a complete and noble death. I'm going to have wild, crazy sex. Characters like Alexei and Kiyoshi plan to get drunk and pilled up, respectively, while Allison just wants to conquer her shyness. Danny isn't quite sure what she wants to do yet, but believe me, she's going to figure that one out in a hurry. Raven's the group's resident sniper, and clearly the one who's going to do all the killing. This leaves April, the seventh cadet. 
I saved her for the end because to me, she's the character I relate to the most. Although, at least in issue number one, she's far from the most significant character in the narrative. That falls on Danny. But April's the only one of the seven who flatly refuses this predetermined fate of having to die. As of now, there's no reason given for why she has to die. We just know that this stunning 19-year-old girl who hypothetically has her whole life ahead of her doesn't want to give it all up. April's portrayed as this bratty daddy's girl who's been given every advantage in the academy because of who her father is. She even uses her father's name to try and threaten her instructor, General Garrow, into pulling the plug on her execution. But there's no way out for April, nor for her six classmates. This really resonates with me, and it'll continue to do so as we move on. In this first half of issue one, we're clued into the idea that there's some sort of organization called the Trey, and their goal is to find where the Time Warriors race comes from, and then go back in time to exterminate it before it can even be born. This, to me, is what's most attractive about time travel stories. All the complications that come from two different races capable of time travel. I think David Tennant's Tenth Doctor describes it best. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. What really sticks out, though, is a thought that Alexei has before Raven mercilessly kills him, where he reflects on how much of an honor it is to serve his race, though he admits he isn't sure what his race is. How can someone be motivated to protect a race they don't even know? That's a new level of patriotism, and it got me wondering how that kind of devotion comes about. A strong propaganda machine, maybe. And it might be a controversial statement, but the fact that these time warriors are isolated and subjugated to an intense form of propaganda gives me the appearance of real-world suicide bombers. I'm excited for the next few issues to explain this a bit more. Back to the events of the book though. Raven's killing spree plays out like a montage, with Raven gunning down most of the cadets in the middle of their plans. Some deaths are tinged with a dark sort of comic relief, like Rodrigo getting gunned down in the middle of what seems like one heck of a sex party, or naked Allison getting shot in the neck in front of a bunch of strangers. Some are depressing though, like Kiyoshi overdosing on pills before Raven even has a chance to shoot him. Meanwhile, it's Danny August who introduces us to the Datum, a black box that all of the cadets wear on the back of their necks. No matter what alterations the Time Warriors make to the timeline, that Datum stores all of the information, so it's not lost forever. I like the concept of the Datum because it's a way of keeping time travelers accountable for their actions. The only flaw in that plan is the datum can be removed, which Danny is eager to demonstrate, removing it in order to put the moves on her superior, Colonel K. Parker. While Danny seduces her superior, Raven dispatches April, who, like Ellison, dies in the nude. But while all of this is going on, it's General Garrow who has secured an intruder who claims to come from 30 years in the future. He's somehow managed to break through all the Time Warriors' defenses, and he's got something important he needs to say. And this is where I thought I'd end things for now. I've talked about the first 16 pages of the book, and we've got 16 to go, so we're about halfway through. We'll wrap up issue number one and talk more about the storytelling mechanics that I appreciated most in this book next time, here on the Blind Panels Podcast.